This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 15, Isaiah and the Babylonian Crisis. You recall that the large-scale outline of the book of Isaiah is chapters 1 through 6, an outline or a skeleton of Isaiah's ministry, giving an overview of the things that he taught. And then chapters 7 through 39, Isaiah dealing with the Assyrian crises during the days of Ahaz and during the days of Hezekiah. Now we come to the last portion of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah's chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 through 66, um, the focus of Isaiah's ministry on the Babylonian crisis. Let's begin with Roman number 1, overview, the, A, the basic content, figure 15-1. Isaiah 40 through 66 has an occasional reference here and there to current realities in the days of Isaiah's ministry, the sins of the people, the threats of judgment, things like that. But by and large, the references of this material are to future realities, troubles for the exile, troubles um, of the exile rather, and the glories of restoration. These are the main concerns of Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. And so in many respects we can see that while this, these portions of the material here are relevant for Isaiah's contemporary audience, that is those to, who are listening to him, at the same time the primary focus of these materials is a much later Israel, and Israel after the days of Hez Isaiah's own life. This raises the question, Roman number 1b, of composition. It has been argued very strongly that what we have here in Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 is, is something of a different character than we have in the first 39 chapters of this book. And I think that if you look at the style of chapters 1 through 39 and compare it with 40 through 66, I think there's a strong case can be made that the style is different. And the issue or the question may be, um, one may be solved rather by thinking of chapter 40 through 66 as having a slightly different compositional history. That is not to say Deutero-Isaiah or Trito-Isaiah, but it is to say that perhaps Isaiah 40 through 66 is largely a written um, work rather than something that was given orally at different times. Although um, we cannot discount the idea that there are oracles behind individual verbal oracles given in public audience behind what's written here, it could very well be that what we have are um, written compositions. But what I want to suggest is that one of the chief characteristics that make this material different is the fact that you have these oracles that are rather loosely batched around certain crucial issues and themes. And I want to suggest that most of these um, oracles and sections of Isaiah 40 through 66 were written down or um, yeah, even given perhaps after Hezekiah sinned with Babylon as it's mentioned in chapter 39 verses 1 through 8. And for this reason it deals primarily with the Babylonian crisis and perhaps uh, the compositional history of it can explain some of the differences that are um, between these and the materials in chapters 1 through 39. This brings us then to Roman number 1c, the literary structure of Isaiah 40 through 66. 
figure 15.3 gives what I would consider to be a reasonable outline of these materials. This is perhaps the most difficult portion of the prophetic literature when it comes to trying to find some kind of logic or um, tight literary structure. What I have done here in this figure 15.3 is to give what I consider to be upon my perusal a sort of summary of major themes in the various sections. This is not to say of course by any means that the um, that this outline is the only way to summarize this material, but it is, I think, a helpful way to look at it. Basically, what I'm suggesting is that at the head of all of this material, you have Isaiah 41 through 11, where God calls Isaiah to proclaim the restoration coming despite the exile. And we're going to look at that passage in some detail. Then in chapters 40 through 44, 23, uh, I want to suggest is dealing with God's power to restore. And then the next two big sections deal with God's instruments of restoration. And then the, finally, the Israel's response as it is a key to the restoration in the last two sections of this material. If you think about this for just a moment, it makes some sense. God's power to restore, the instruments of restore, restoration, and then the manner or the way of restoration in terms of Israel's reason. And each of those sections can be divided down into two major batches of material. God's power to restore can be broken into Yahweh being able to restore and then Yahweh being trusted to restore. That is, he can be trusted as well as having the power. In other words, he will do it. And then under the instruments of restoration, we find primarily two themes, and that is one, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, being appointed to destroy Babylon. That's one of the instruments of restoration. Then the other instrument of restoration is the servant, the famous servant appointed by God. And then Yahweh, then under this element of response and restoration, um, the the uh, first section has to do with Israel's re repentance and acceptance of the reality of exile and then God's response to that in the Restoration Oracles. Okay. We find then that this is material that focuses on a variety of issues in different ways but batch around these kinds of main themes. Now what we're going to do is to walk through these issues and try to understand them in the light of this overarching outline. So we'll begin first by looking at Roman numeral 2, Isaiah's second call, letter A, the literary structure, figure 15.4. In figure 15.4 I give an outline of the second call of Isaiah. In many respects these first verses of Isaiah 40 parallel Isaiah chapter 6 in that Isaiah is given another call. This time, however, unlike chapter 6 where the word is primarily a word of judgment, this is a word now of promise of restoration. It's very important for us to understand the outline of this material. It begins in the first five verses with a general announcement of a herald in the heavenly court where he calls for someone to speak with words of comfort to Israel to Judah. You'll notice that in verse 1 where it says, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly, that these imperatives here are in the plural. And because of the plurality of these verbs, that is, they're addressed to 
a large group of people. You remember how the King James puts it, comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Um, because of this, we think that what we have here is rather than a specific word to Isaiah, is we have a heavenly herald, a heavenly announcer, proclaiming that God has ordered comforting words for Judah and that forgiveness and release have come. And he's calling out for someone in the heavenly court to proclaim words of comfort and to speak tenderly. Then verses 3 through 5, we find the herald going further, saying that a way is to be prepared. Yahweh's way. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, the way of Yahweh. Um, and this preparation is much along the lines of a way, the way of a great highway in the city of Babylon, which was called the Way of Marduk. It was a street where victory parades would march after the Babylonians would conquer a city or win a victory in warfare. They would come back and they would hail Marduk as they paraded their captors and as they paraded the images and accoutrements of Marduk in this great parade. And um, you see here, once again, these are still in the plural. Verse uh, 3, prepare ye the way of the Lord, is plural, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And um, then I want to suggest that as this herald continues, instead of saying every valley will rise up and every mountain will be made low in rough places, instead of saying these things are going to happen, I want to suggest, contrary to the NIV translation, that we read these according to the Hebrew grammatical designation of as jussives. And if we were to read them as such, which is quite feasible for the Hebrew, then we, what we would say is, along the lines of prepare ye the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway, then we'd say, let every valley be raised up, let the mountains and hill be made low, and let the rough places be plain and the rugged places smooth. And so the letting idea, meaning in other words, he's, he's announcing, calling on someone to do this rather than saying that it's going to be done. And so the heavenly herald proclaims that God has ordered a splendid processional highway to be built. But notice where this way of Yahweh, as opposed to Marduk, is to be built. Marduk's road went into the city of Babylon. Yahweh's road is to stretch across the desert like a super highway where the mountains are brought low and the valleys, the dips in the road are brought up so it's a level and straight uh, highway. And it is to go from Babylon or from the desert through the desert to Jerusalem. And um, he proclaims that this highway is to be built in the wilderness between Babylon and Jerusalem for God to travel gloriously down this road as he brings the returnees home before all the nations. Did you notice what it says there? Make straight in the desert a highway for our God and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, verse 5, and all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this is the general announcement of the heavenly herald as he's announcing to the host of heaven in the plurals that these things are to be done, that, the, um, that comforting words are to be spoken by someone, tender words. He's announcing for someone to prepare the way to make straight a, desert, a, a way through the desert for Yahweh. Now, in the light of this, then, we come to a specific call to Isaiah. So you have the general call for what's to be going on, and that is to say that the announcement of restoration is given in a general way to the heavenly host. But remember that in typical prophetic uh, manner, Isaiah is, as it were, in the heavenly court listening to these things going on, and a word comes to him specifically, verse 6a. 
a voice says, cry out. Now, this imperative is in the singular, and so we believe that the heavenly herald calls Isaiah himself to be the one who preaches. And Isaiah objects with, a, with this question, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the fields. Uh, the grass withers and the flower fa fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. Now, you need to understand that in Hebrew, very often you'll have an alternation between one person speaking and another person speaking. You can't be sure exactly when one person speaking and the other. And I want to suggest that verses 6b through 7 are Isaiah asking questions to the heavenly herald and saying basically that what can I say when you, when you ask me to cry out, when you ask me to preach, what can I say when God has treated so harshly his people by sending them off into Babylonian exile? I mean, after all, people are just like grass. God speaks, the breath of the Lord blows on them, and they wither and they blow away. And so Isaiah wonders what to say because in the exile God has destroyed his people and by his breath they are um, treated like grass that dries up and vanishes. And then in verse 8 I want to suggest is the, is the response of the herald. The herald says, the grass withers and flowers fall. All right, that's true enough. In other words, he's affirming what Isaiah is saying in his objection. But then he continues, but the word of our God stands forever. And so in this, I, in this kind of reading, what I'm suggesting is, is that the heavenly herald tells Isaiah God's word, which he has already promised Israel, that he will bring the exiled people back to the land when they repent, that God's word will stand forever despite the fact that human frailty has caused trouble and trials and despite the fact that the exile will be harsh and troubling. God's word will be permanent and it will bring the people back to the promised land. The heavenly herald responds that God's covenant promises of restorations, restoration abides forever despite the exile. And then the specific call continues as the heavenly herald tells Isaiah to do certain things in verses 9 through 11. You'll notice in verse 9, you who bring good tidings to Zion, that's He's, this is the herald talking to Isaiah. Go up on a high mountain. That's in the singular imperative. Lift up your voice. Lift up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah. All of these are in the singular, thus addressing Isaiah himself. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Um, now verse not, verses 9d through verse 11 talk about the content of his preaching. This in 9a through c we have the commission, now the content. What is it that Isaiah is supposed to tell the people is going to happen? Well, it says in 9d, say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. In other words, God will come bringing victory over the enemies, but he will come tenderly shepherding his flock. Verse 11, he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. So Isaiah is told in this chapter then to proclaim to all Judah that God has defeated the enemies and that he will bring back the exiles in tender grace. 
If you look at figure 15.5, you can see the prominent motifs in Isaiah's second call. The first is that in chapters one, chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, you have a general announcement of restoration, that the restoration has been decreed. But then it moves from that to the idea that Isaiah is to receive a specific call and he raises a specific objection. Isaiah's objection is, I don't know what to say since God has withered his people like grass through the exile. The herald responds that God's word to his people will never perish, it is sure. And as a, res as a res result of that, in verses 9 through 11, Isaiah is given a specific call to bring the good news to people, the people of Judah. Isaiah is to tell all of Judah that God has conquered the nation and that he will return his people to the land. So these are the two prominent motifs. Indeed, to admit that the exile has been decreed and that it will be harsh, but that God's word of response and restoration is true. And so what's the original meaning of this? Figure 6, 15.6. Isaiah's second call deals with the problem of exile and the assurance of restoration. And this anticipates the entirety of chapters 40 through 66. It deals with a problem, and that problem is how can we have hope of restoration in the light of God's severe judgment of the exile? I mean, what, what hope can we have when God has treated us this way? And you remember this is basically what Isaiah says to the herald. But the assurance of verses 1 through 11 of chapter 40 can be found also in chapters 40 through 66. And that assurance is that God's word is true, he will conquer the enemies, and he will show mercy to his people. And I think in many respects what Isaiah is saying is, I had the same questions that the exiles have about the restoration of Israel, and now I'll tell you what I learned from God as I received these oracles from him. And that what the lesson he learned, of course, was that God's word would be true. This brings us then to Roman numeral 3, God's power to restore. If you recall figure 15.3, we're dealing now with the material immediately following Isaiah's call to proclaim the restoration despite the exile. We're dealing, in other words, with chapters 40 through 44, verse 23, where Isaiah deals in two ways with God's power to restore. Looking at figure 15.7, the theme of God's power to restore, in the first section the question is, can God do it? And then the second question, which is a little bit different than the first, will he do it? In other words, can God accomplish what he wants to do? Does he have the power? And then second, does he have the will to do it? Does he have the determination to do it? Well, we begin with um, the question of can God do it? And I think that the answer to this, this question comes in the form of several different uh, ideas. If you take a look at figure 15.8, we have a disputation that takes place in chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. A disputation is a bit of material that reflects an argument. Now, usually in the prophetic material, a prophetic disputation or a disputation of any sort in the prophets will only give one side of the argument. And what you have to do is imagine the other side of the argument. It's kind of like listening to a telephone conversation, only hearing one side of the conversation. You can anticipate and fill in the blanks and many times conclude 
properly what's being said by the other party. And in many ways, that's what's happening in chapter 40, verses 12 through 31, where Isaiah is arguing that God can restore Israel because he is sovereign over the nations and over the idols. If you take a look at chapter 40, verses 12 through 17, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the, dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the scales, weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? And so you see here in many respects that you have um, a response of Isaiah to questions that have, or issues or objections that have been raised. He's asking these rhetorical questions and of course the answer it to all of these is no one, no one but Yahweh has been able to do these things. And so he continues in verse 15, surely the nations, and that's what's important here, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for animals enough for burnt offerings. It's before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as nothing worthless and less than nothing. So the idea here is that I, Yahweh is so far above the nations that they pose, pose absolutely no threat to him at all. So the first issue that Isaiah deals with is the power of the nations versus the power of Yahweh. And he says that there's no comparison between these. That Yahweh's power is so supreme that he treats all the nations of the earth as if they were nothing, even less than nothing. Then the second major theme he deals with in the disputation is that of the power of idols. To whom then, verse 18, will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? For, as for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold. And so you see he's saying basically that idols are nothing. And he makes this conclusion in verse 26, a conclusion of confidence. Lift up your eyes and look to, he to the heavens who created all these. He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is, ever, is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Okay, so the idea here then is that Israel and Judah in exile is expected by Isaiah, or it's anticipated by Isaiah, that they will uh, be complaining and wondering about where their God is, and Isaiah is telling them, don't worry, your God is here, he's constant, he's consistent, he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Now, these two themes themes of God's power over the nations and the power over the idols are picked up in later chapters here, the following chapters in fact, as you see from the outline in figure 15.8. The nations are dealt with in a trial speech against the nations where it shows that the nations are no threat because one from the east, and that of course is Cyrus, will destroy them all at God's command. And yet at the same time, while um, the nations will be destroyed by this Cyrus, the salvation oracle of chapter 41 indicates case that Israel need not fear Cyrus because God will protect and restore her through Cyrus. Cyrus is not mentioned, he's just called in this chapter one from the east.
And then the theme of idols is taken up, where the trial speeches are given against the idols. And it says here in chapter 41, 21 through 29, that the idols are no threat because only Yahweh predicted the, tr the future and controls the one from the north. And again, that's probably Cyrus in verse 25. And even there, salvation for Israel will come through a servant that Israel need not fear because God will raise his servant to keep praise from the idols, verses 8 and 9. And chapter 42, verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the ends of the earth. And this is a praise of Yahweh as the one who will be victorious over the nations and the idols. And so in many ways, these chapters, chapters 40 through 42, answer the question, can God uh, restore Israel? And the answer is he certainly can. He has the power over the nations and he has the power over the idols to do it. And if we look at figure 15.9, we can see that the assumptions of the audience that Isaiah is anticipating in his prophecy, the, their assumptions are that the nations are powerful and that the foreign gods are powerful. Of course, that would be reasonable to think this because after all, they were under the dominion of these nations and their gods. But, and so they would conclude that perhaps restoration cannot be done because the uh, restoration is something that takes power to conquer these nations and these gods. And since Yahweh's people were defeated, as according to the common ideology of the ancient Near East, it must be then that Yahweh was defeated. But Isaiah's response is that Yahweh is sovereign over the nations and that Yahweh is superior to the idols and therefore restoration will occur. Now we have in this chapter, chapter 42, verses 1 through 9, the introduction of the theme of the servant of the Lord. Chapter 42 and verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I take delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out and so on and so on. We know these passages and we know also that these passages are taken up as we'll see later on in the uh, New Testament to talk about Jesus in fact. But this is our first description of the servant or the Evid Yahweh. A servant in its essence is a special leader of God's people. Sometimes the phrase refers to prophets. You can see this in figure 1510 and sometimes it refers to kings. In this case the evidence is that the Evid Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh, is a royal figure and not a prophetic figure. We think, for example, of chapter 42.1, he's called the chosen one, which is a royal theme. He'll bring justice to the nations. He'll be a light to the nations. He'll free captives, 42 verse 7. And um, this, of course, will lead to the song of praise that we've already read in chapter 42.10 through 17 because the restoration is sure because of this royal servant who's going to come. And as we look further into chapters 40 through 66, we're going to see that the theme of the servant's role in restoration will be discussed more extensively. But I wanted just to introduce it at this point because we realize that this is the first time that the Evid Yahweh or servant of Yahweh, in this case my servant, is, he's called um, Yahweh speaking, is mentioned in this book. What would be the main idea then of these chapters, chapter 40, verse 12 through 42, 17? Figure 15, 11. One, Isaiah says that Yahweh has power over the nations. He has power over the idols. He will, have, he will send his royal servant 
to destroy the nations and to establish justice, and then the section ends with a song of praise. And I think that Isaiah's basic message is that God, Yahweh, has the power to overcome his enemies, overcome the enemies of Israel and Judah, and to restore the nation to its rightful place when God chooses to do so. So can he do it? The answer is yes. But this is not enough. It's one thing to say that God can do something. It's another thing to ask, can he be trusted to do it? In other words, is he willing to do it? And if you look at figure 15.3, this is the second theme I want to suggest that comes out in this material under the rubric of God's power to restore. Yahweh can be trusted to restore Israel, chapter 42.18 through 44.23. We begin this section with a disputation in chapter 42, 18 through 25, where the theme is that God is not deaf or blind, as we assume someone has accused him of being for ignoring Judah in the exile. It's not God who is deaf or blind to Israel, but Israel is the one who has been deaf and blind, and therefore Israel or Judah deserves the exile she has received. Listen to the way it works in chapter 18, chapter 42, verse 18. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. In other words, the point is Isaiah is addressing the people. He's saying, you're the ones who are blind. You're the ones who are deaf. And then he asks the question, as he did in the previous disputation, who is blind? You have to understand now that we're going to run into some terms that are going to be used a little bit differently than we have seen before. The phrase, for example, in verse 19, servant of the Lord, the one committed to me, um, these are references now, a messenger and my servant, these are references not to the individual royal figure that's coming to deliver, but at times in this material, Isaiah actually uses the expression my servant as a sort of, uh, as a designation of the nation of Judah. In other words, they were his chosen people and they were um, together or counted as together with the royal figures of the past. And so in this case, he's going to be talking about the kings of the past and therefore the nation of the past. And he's going to be making the point here in this section that they are the ones who have been blind, not Yahweh. Who is blind? But my servant, meaning the nation of Israel, the king and, his, and the nation, and deaf like the messenger I send. Who is, blind, who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but have no, paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. And so that's the accusation. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his laws great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot with no one to say, send them back. Which one of you will listen to this or pay close attention in the time to come? And so the basic argument here is that Yahweh has done something to Israel and to Judah, but he has not done it unjustly. He has been just in sending them off into exile because he is not the one blind or deaf to the needs of his people. On the contrary, they are the ones who have been blind and deaf to his word. But following this disputation is a salvation oracle that said God will call them back. Then we have another trial speech against the nations and their idols where Yahweh says don't listen to these nations and their idols because they have no power. God will do what he says he will do. 
in chapter 8, verse 13, take a look. I have revealed and have saved, verse 12, and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God, yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? So Yahweh is saying here that He will do what He has promised to Israel. He gives a salvation oracle in chapter 43, 14 through 21, where it says that Yahweh will do a new thing for Israel in the restoration. Then there's a disputation against Israel once again, where it says and argues very strongly that God did no wrong to, to Israel when he exiled her. She deserved her exile. And then a salvation oracle, trial speeches again against the nations and their idols, and a salvation oracle for Israel that God will restore the glory of Israel in the future. And so we find that Yahweh does promise that he will do what he has said he will do. He can be counted on to accomplish his great goals. Now, in this material then, if you look at figure 1513, we find these kinds of major themes. The defense of the exile, in other words, Yahweh has not done something unfair. He is not uh, unjust in this. God will restore. The nations and idols have no power to resist him. He will restore Israel. And so God has treated Israel fairly and he can be trusted to restore Israel because he has said that he will do so. This brings us to Roman numeral 4, God's instruments of restoration. You remember from figure 15.3, we deal first with the call of Isaiah, then God's power to restore, and now God's instruments of restoration. The first of these instruments, of course, is Cyrus, the king of Persia, and the second is his, the anointed servant that will be restoring Israel and Judah. As you see in figure 15.14, the, uh, the two focal points here from chapter 44 through 48 is first Cyrus and then 49 through 56, the servant. If we take a look at figure 1515, we can see that basically Isaiah is dealing with this question of how God will free Israel from Babylon. And it begins with, the, with a hymn of God glorifying himself, God saying that he designed Cyrus to be the instrument of Jerusalem's restoration. Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 through 28. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. Then he goes on down into verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt of the temple. Let its foundations be laid. And so God uh, praises himself for being the one who will use Cyrus. Of course, it is a praiseworthy thing that God would use his enemies to restore his people. Then there's a royal oracle of Cyrus in chapter 45, 1 through 8. This is what the Lord says to his anointed. Notice that the word anointed is used here, Mashiach or Messiah, to refer to the Persian emperor Cyrus, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of. So we see here then in chapter 45 that the Lord speaks to Cyrus and he says he's going to do all kinds of things for him, subdue nations, strip, strip kings of their armor, open doors, gates. Yahweh says, I'll go before you. I will level the mountains and break down the gates of bronze and so on and so on. Uh, the idea here is, of course, that the instrument of, of Yahweh's uh, victory for Judah and Israel is going to be Cyrus, the Persian king. 
Now, this, of course, raised unbelievably difficult problems for the nation of Israel. As they would hear oracles like these, they'd have to ask themselves, can we really believe that this sort of thing would go on? And that's why this oracle, the royal oracle of Cyrus, is followed by a disputation against disbelief. Chapter 45, verse 9, Woe to him who quarrels with his maker, to him who is but a potsherd among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Sounds like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. But here the issue is, why don't dispute with Yahweh and his plans. He's the one who made you so he can do with you as he pleases. If he wants to use Cyrus as his anointed one, he will do so. And you should stop disbelieving his plan for Cyrus. This is followed by an oracle of salvation for Israel, that God will shame the idol makers and save Israel. Again, another disputation against belief that God will save Israel, the idols will be no problem. Followed again by another disp disp disputation of disp against disbelief, where the Babylonian gods in particular, chapter 46, will not be able to hinder Yahweh. This, of course, is followed by some judgment oracles against Babylon, where God is determined to destroy Babylon for its pride, and the disputations against disbelief once again, where God will succeed in restoring the nation, and then a call to praise, where Yahweh should be praised because of his victory over Babylon. What I'm suggesting here is that in chapters 44 and 45, the introduction of Cyrus as the instrument, how will God free Israel from Babylon? Through the instrument of Cyrus. And that this, of course, climaxes in the praise of Yahweh. So if you look at figure 15, 16, we have basically God has appointed Cyrus, Israel should believe in God's plan, Babylon will be destroyed, and Israel should rejoice. So the basic message of this material is that God will deal with the Babylonians through Cyrus. Now, the, the other question that may be raised in all of this is, okay, it's one thing to be set free or to find destruction of Babylon, but what about the restoration of Israel itself? How will God reestablish Israel? And this is where figure 1517 comes in, dealing with chapters 49 through 56, where basically we begin with a royal oracle, not of Cyrus, but this time of God's servant chapter 49. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made me made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hands. He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow. He conceived me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And so the idea here is that Yahweh will restore Israel, and Yahweh will reach the nations through his special servant. This goes all the way down through verse 6. Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, to bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will make you a light to, for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. And of course, these are words that are referred to um, Jesus in the New Testament. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the, ruler, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and rise up, princes will see you and bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So here's a royal oracle for God's servant. This is followed by a salvation oracle for God's servant, chapter 49, uh, verses 7 through 13. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of, my sal of salvation, I will help you. Um, 
the disputations against unbelief, much like we've had before, that Yahweh has not forsaken Israel. He will restore her. And then in chapter 15, a, a psalm of confidence for the servant, where the servant is blessed by God despite the difficulties that he faces. A salvation judgment oracle in relation to the servant, and that is that the salvation comes to those who obey the servant and destruction to those who resist him. Um, chapter 10 verse chapter 50 verse 10 who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant that him who walks in the dark who has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God but now all of you all of you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches go walk in the light of your fires and um, so the idea here is that as Yahweh is providing his servant to redeem Israel they should follow him there's a lament and response where Israel requests and uh, salvation and God responds promising he will give it. An oracle of salvation, another oracle of salvation, a judgment against the nations because Yahweh will destroy them. Um, a hymn of praise where, Yahweh should, where Israel should rejoice in her restoration. A call to depart where Isaiah says it's time to leave Babylon and go. And the announcement then of the famous passage of the announcement of the servant's suffering and the servant's exaltation. Uh, chapter 52, 13 through 53, 12, which of course we know in the New Testament is, is spoken of with regard to Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. This uh, ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy is that of, is found in Jesus of Nazareth alone. A hymn of praise because God will redeem Israel and the restoration will be glorious. Even foreigners and eunuchs will receive the blessings in the restoration period. The question comes as to what the basic message of this material is, and figure 1518 says, Yahweh's servant will reach the nations. Israel should believe in this plan of God. God will bless Israel and destroy the enemies. The servant will suffer and will be exalted, and he will suffer vicariously for the people, and that restoration will be glorious. God's servant, the Davidic king, will bring about the full restoration of God's people and blessings to the nations as well as to Judah uh, through his vicarious sufferings and exaltation. You can see that then as the main theme of this material on the idea that God has appointed his servants to restore, his servant rather, to restore Israel. This brings us then to the last section of the chapters 40 through 66. And I have deemed this response and restoration because in chapters 56 through 63, we're dealing with the theme of repentance. And then in 63 through 66, lament and restoration. So let's take a look at this material. First, what we find in, according to figure 1520, is that the first section chapters 56 and 9 through 63, 6, deals with a lot of judgment and call to repentance and then with promises that God will restore. You can see that the oracle of judgment against Judah is rather straightforward, that Israel is wicked in chapter 56 and that the wicked will be destroyed but the righteous delivered. And then there's a call to repentance as Israel must repent of Sabbath breaking and the injustices that they perform on the Sabbath. This is a famous passage about turning your foot to your own pleasure, uh, double a double violation by doing wicked things on the Sabbath day. Another call to repentance which demonstrates that Israel's troubles are because of sin and that repentance is needed. 
created. Well, what will be the result of this repentance, a salvation oracle? Or, uh, actually, three of them here where they we're taught that God will restore Israel upon her repentance. And then the question for the century, which is sort of a dramatic uh, portrait of the restoration about to begin in chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garment stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave my support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, and I, in my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So what we find then in this material is God coming, having trampled the enemies of Israel. The basic message of this material is that judgment will come, there's a judgment against Israel, they're called to repentance, and then the restoration will follow that. And all who hear Isaiah's words should fear God, repent of their sins, that is the sins that took them off into exile, and they should then hope in future restoration in the light of their repentance. But this brings us then to the very last section of this material, where Yahweh promises a glorious restoration to the lamenting exiles, chapter 63-7 through 66-24. 63-7 through 64-12 is a long section of lament. The NIV Bible, I know, calls this as a praise and prayer, but in many respects it is a, um, a lament in the form of a lament. Typical fashion, this lament begins with, with talking about the praises and the wonders of God. Verse 7, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. But then it moves into the troubles that Israel has been faced, facing. Uh, verse 10, yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them and to gain for himself everlasting renown? And so we see here themes coming through that are normal for laments, as you see laments in the various psalms of the uh, Psalter. Uh, verse 16, but you are our father, though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our, our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. And so there's a lament and in this lament over the exile, the exiles request restoration and plead with Yahweh to give them their restoration. And then in chapter 65, verse 1, in typical fashion for the liturgy of lament, we find uh, the beginning of Yahweh's promises to restore. At the end of this long lament in chapter 64, verse 12, we find these words, After all this, O Lord, why will you hold yourself back? Why will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? And then we find Yahweh's response in chapter 65, verse 1. 
I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me, to a nation that did not call on my name. I said, Here am I, here am I. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. And then he goes on in verse 8, As when juice is found in the cluster of grapes, and men say, Don't destroy it, yet there is some good in it. So I will do on the behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them. And so the, the, thing, the message that comes through here is that there is going to be a restoration, but that this restoration will involve a destruction of the wicked and a uh, returning of the righteous in the grace of God. In chapter 65, 17, we find the, the climax of this book, and the climax of the book of Isaiah is that Yahweh is going to, in the restoration, restore nature. Now, we have seen this theme in a number of ways in the book of Amos, in the book of Hosea, that restoration involves a restructuring of nature to its proper idyllic proportions. And uh, chapter 65, 17 puts it this way, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. This was a very realistic, in many respects, realistic earthly vision of the restoration that was given, and that is that it would be a place where a time when nature worked as it was supposed to, it would be a time of great blessing. We can see that this was talking about an earthly dwelling and not the eternal state originally in terms of its original meaning from verse 20. There in verse 20, Isaiah says, Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Well, in the new heavens and new earth, as we understand it as Christians, there will not be any infants born, nor or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. So the, so the idea here is that we're talking about the restoration of Israel after the exile. This is what Isaiah had in mind. The New Testament picks up on this theme, as we'll see in a moment, and deals with it in terms of the new heavens and the new earth in Christ that will come at the second coming of Christ. But at this stage in the revelation of the Bible, Isaiah is talking about the restoration from exile, and he's mentioning these kinds of themes that the child who is born, uh, who doesn't live to be a hundred years old, will be considered a curse in this new heavens and new earth, this new order that will come after the exile's restoration. So basically what's going on in this material is that Isaiah is giving instructions to the people, telling them how they should lament and how they should request return from the exile. And if they will do this, according to chapters 63 and 64, then they will receive the uh, response that Yahweh gives in chapters 65 through 66. In this material, then, figure 1523, there is a lament over the exile and a divine response of restoration, that God's answer to the laments of the exiles is the promise of a splendid restoration. We need to pause for just a moment and think about this vision that Isaiah has of the restoration. Look at figure 1524. Isaiah basically says in these materials that the exile is just and that this just exile nearly destroys the nation of Israel. 
but he says there's going to be a glorious return, that Cyrus is going to be used to destroy the Babylonians, that the servant will suffer and be exalted, that the wicked will be eliminated, there will be destruction of the nations, enlightenment of the nations, inclusion of foreigners, a restoration of Zion, there will be freedom, healing, peace and harmony and long and fruitful living as we've seen in chapter 65. How will all of these things take place? I'm not sure that Isaiah himself even knew how in detail how all of these things would have gone on, but he is giving us, as it were, a montage of visions or vignettes, uh, insights into what the restoration period will look like. Now, the New Testament elaborates on Isaiah's vision of restoration because, as, as we remember, when the people of God came back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the restoration program began, but it failed because of the continuing sinfulness of the people of God. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah emphasize how the people of God continued in rebellion against Yahweh, and he removed his blessing from them. So Isaiah's vision of restoration, there are elaborations even in the Old Testament in Chronicles where, where the emphasis is on the need to rebuild the temple and reform the worship of Israel in order to have the blessings. Ezra and Nehemiah that talk about even the divorcing that had to take place. Haggai, Zechariah who emphasized the need to rebuild the temple. The people were refusing to contribute to the rebuilding program. Malachi who says that, um, that the rebellion of Israel was so bad that Yahweh had postponed his blessings of restoration. Basically, these books tell us in the Old Testament that Israel's continued rebellion stopped the restoration short of its full realization. But the New Testament picks up on passages that we have covered here in this lecture from chapter 40 all the way to chapter 65 and says that Israel's full restoration was postponed until the coming of Christ, the great servant and that Jesus, the great servant of Yahweh, um, fulfills these restoration promises in the inauguration. You can look at these passages in Luke 2, Acts chapter 8. In the continuation of the kingdom today, Ephesians chapter 6, as is quoting uh, these passages from Isaiah, and in the consummation in his second coming, where in Revelation 21.1 we read about, Behold, a new heavens and a new earth here referring to the restoration promises of the book of Isaiah. So as Christians, we read these latter sections of the book of Isaiah, the hope of restoration, and we apply it to the first coming of Christ, the continuation of the kingdom in our own lives today, and we apply it also to our hope of the return of Christ and um, the marvelous changes that will take place in this creation when he comes back. This brings us then to the final figure of this lecture, the appropriational model. We've seen three main themes, that God has the power to restore, God has instruments of restoration, and the response of Israel will, in many respects, be the key to the restoration. Well, with the original meaning was, of course, that God can and will bring Israel back. The New Testament says that God has and will reestablish His kingdom in Christ, and today we live in and look forward to the restoration of God's kingdom, the God who has the power to establish His kingdom on earth. We believe also in the original meaning where it speaks of the instruments of restoration, where God will use Cyrus and his servant to restore Israel. God has, now, has already sent Cyrus, and now he has sent his royal servant, Jesus, the Christ. And the application today is that we lean entirely on the sufferings and exaltations of God's servant to give us the restoration uh, as promised by Isaiah. 
and then the response and restoration, Israel's reaction would affect her future. That was the original meaning of these materials, and that the New Testament tells us that people today must react properly to God to receive the benefits of restoration. And we, according to Peter in chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verse 12, we speed the coming of the day of God when, as we react properly to God and to his call to us. And so we find then that the messages of this latter portion of the book of Isaiah speak to our day rather poignantly, and they, um, these words of Isaiah, especially those of restoration, touch our lives and give us hope that one day we will be redeemed from this fallen world through Christ. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.